Bridge Kids, grateful that you were here. I'm grateful. Yeah, I'd really like you to stay, but you see how many people leave? And I'm grateful that uh, you braved coming out today. We've had some crazy weather, 14, 15 inches of snow this week in a lot of places. We've had some terribly cold weather. We've got more coming. It would have just been easy to say, you know, I, I think I'd maybe just like to hang at home today. And so thank you uh, for making it to be here today. We're going to be in Luke chapter 16. Short verses, kind of crazy though, and uh, in some ways harsh. This is the thing about teaching through the Bible. Uh, you got to cover all the passages. Sometimes you're just like, maybe I should leave this one out today. And if we go through the Bible, that doesn't happen. So uh, the, the title of this message is Heart Check. Really appropriate with Valentine's coming, right? Here we go. Carol Tarvis and Elliot Aronson wrote a book together about couples' relationships, okay? Listen to the title. Mistakes were made, but not by me, okay? That is a problem in relationships. It's a problem in marriage. The vast, here's a quote uh, that they make in the book. The vast majority of couples who drift apart do so slowly, over time, snowballing, with a pattern of blame and self-justification. Each partner focuses on what the other one is doing wrong. Ever been there? You know, we're, we're pretty happy with our mate. You know, like, you know, 80 or 90% of my, my mate is pretty good. But you know what? She's not perfect or he's not perfect. And it's just so easy to focus on those imperfections almost every day. And he goes on to say, while justifying his or her own preferences, attitudes, and ways of doing things, and here's what they say, from our standpoint, therefore, misunderstandings, conflicts, personality differences, and every angry quarrels, even angry quarrels, are not the assassin of love. Self-justification is. Let that sink in. Self-justification is a toxic part of relationships. Self-justification destroys marriages. It separates parents from their kids and kids from their parents. It hurts friendships. It dislocates members of the church family. It's when you blame others and you don't take responsibility for your own failures. You know, mistakes were made, but not by me. Self-justification is the hallmark of the attitude of the first century religious leaders. And I'm talking about the Pharisees. Jesus calls them out in Luke 16. They sought to be self-righteous. They blamed others for their national situation, and they criticized all of their opponents. If you remember, Jesus had been teaching about money in Luke chapter 16. That's what we looked at last week. Now, he'd been teaching his disciples. 
those who were interested in following him. Pharisees are there, they're listening in. And now Jesus stops and turns directly to them. He, raises, he confronts them over three issues in five verses. And that's our focus uh, this morning. And um, there's some hard, hard things. And so uh, verse 14, uh, verses 14, through, I'm just going to read the whole passage. Luke chapter 16, verses 14 through 15. And so uh, verse 14 goes, The Pharisees who love money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men, but God knows your hearts. What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. Verse 16, The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached. And everyone is forcing his way into it. It's easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. And here's a really hard verse. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery, and the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. That's what Jesus had to say in five verses. So in verses uh, 14 and 15, we're going to start with the values of the heart. Remember, he's speaking to the Pharisees who loved money. They heard all that Jesus had to say, and they sneered at him. You know, they were chuckling to themselves, trying not to do it out loud. Um, and right here in verse 14, the Pharisees didn't say, you know what, folks, we love money. No, it's a commentary of God about the religious leaders of Israel who loved money. Um, so um, it's sort of like their response is like, who does he think he is? Now, we're going to go back into the context just to remind you. Some of you weren't here last week, and the rest of you can't remember last week. And I often can't remember what I preached on last week without going back to look at my notes. So... Uh, in Luke chapter 16, verses 10 through 13, this is what we talked about last week. If you remember this, he's, Jesus said, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. And the whole idea last week is that God has given us money and stuff. It's a lot about a test. How are we going to handle it? Are we going to follow Jesus' priorities? Will the kingdom be first? Will we be generous people? We're going to be stingy. We're going to build our own kingdom. Are we going to invest in building God's kingdom? Verse 11, so if you've not been trustworthy, trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, wealth, that is your money and your stuff, who will trust you with true riches? And he was talking about the future. He was talking about eternity. Uh, it's about laying up treasures in heaven because it's going to make an eternal difference. One day you're going to know. Next slide. And if you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, if you haven't been trustworthy with God's property, the property that he's given you and trusted with you to manage, who, who will give you property of your own? And then he says, no one can serve two masters. That doesn't fly very well in America. Yes, we can. No one can serve two masters. But we try sometimes. 
No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other. And Jesus is saying, devotion to Christ has a lot to do with how you handle your money. Love for God is very much connected to how you handle your resources. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So this is uh, what the Pharisees respond to. This is why they sneer at Jesus, because of what he has just taught. Now, I just want to also say, the Pharisees were living in a false belief system. Doctrine is important. The teaching of the Bible is important. And they had a false uh, belief system. They had a distorted view of how uh, God works. In their view, a sign of God's blessing was wealth. And that was important to them. If, if they had resources, it must be because God was blessing them. God's favor was on them. They were pleasing to God. It affirmed that they were righteous people. Um, so having wealth shows that you're blessed by God. It, and the problem here is Jesus is a poor man. And there's a whole lot of people following Jesus that are poor. He's attracted. Remember, he came to preach good news to the poor. And so Jesus can't be from God. And the Father is not blessing Jesus because he's a poor man. And so they have this attitude about Jesus. And then uh, verse 15, Jesus just comes at them directly. And he has a few words for the self-righteous, self-justifying leaders. These are supposed to be leaders of God's people who are guiding God's people. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. You see this whole thing, and you're probably quite familiar with the religious leaders of the first century. They sought to impress others. They wanted to appear that they had it all together. They wanted to look good on the outside. You know, in, in one place, uh, not in the NIV, but he, Jesus calls them whitewashed sepulchers. They're, they, they're good, good looking on the outside. They look like they're significant, but on the inside, they're just dead bones. Um, Their lives are a sham on the inside. And you know what? God knows it. He knows this false front that they have. That's what the word hypocrite means. It means wearing a mask. You know, God knows our hearts too, doesn't he? He knows all about us. He knows what we're really like. He knows when we're trying to look good. By the way, who really doesn't want people to have a higher view of you than maybe you have of yourself. I, I, I often want people to think I'm really more significant than I really am. And Jesus says what people value is highly detestable in God's sight. And I don't know what you value, 
What's the most important thing in your life? If you're, if you're totally honest, what is, where does your mind go to when it's free? What is the most important thing? Or who is the most important thing if you're totally honest? Now, I'd have to say, God doesn't always fit that for me. I have to sometimes, oh, wait a minute, I'm getting really sloppy here. I, I need to readjust, I need to realign, I need to put God back where he belongs in the number one position. Um, it's God's kingdom first, not our kingdom. Not the things that we want to buy or the things that we own. It's not about how we look. That's not the most important thing. It's not about our performance. It's not about our bank account. Not about our popularity or how many likes we get. It's about God and his kingdom first. What people value is highly detestable in God's sight. We go on to uh, verses 16 and 17. And so um, the values of the heart. What, what about your heart? What is, where does God fit in your heart? And that's what he's challenging the Pharisees to here. And we come now to the authority of Scripture in verses 16 uh, through 17. And who should have known better than the religious leaders of Israel of what the Scripture says, what the Old Testament had to say? Nobody should have known it better. And these guys were experts. And uh, they were very proud about what they knew. And they apparently missed a whole lot. In verse 16, we see the advancement of the gospel. He, Jesus says in verse 16, the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. That is John the Baptist. And if you, if you don't remember the story of Luke in Luke chapter 1, John the Baptist's birth is announced and John is born. And uh, his role is to be an announcer of the kingdom of God and an announcer of the one who is coming. And then in Luke 2, Jesus is born. And if you remember, John is the one who baptized Jesus. And he saw Jesus coming and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And John is like the first one to see it coming. And so Jesus says the law and the prophets, and, and by that Jesus means all of the Old Testament. What we refer to as all of the Old Testament uh, is what is described when uh, we speak of the law and the prophets. They were proclaimed until John. And one of the things that we forget sometimes about the Old Testament, about the rules of the Old Testament, they were uh, valid all of the life of Jesus. They were valid all of the life of John the Baptist. You know, we have the Old Testament and the New Testament, and we think once we start in Matthew that we're in the New Testament. No, we're not. I mean, yes, we're reading the New Testament, but the New Covenant hasn't been established yet. It's been announced, but it won't be established until the death of Jesus. So, the Law and the Prophets were proclaimed until John. And then he said, and, and um, re remember in Luke chapter 4, Jesus went public in his hometown, after reading um, Isaiah chapter 61 
in the synagogue, and he said, Behold, uh, this is fulfilled in your hearing, that he would proclaim the good news to the poor, that he would release captives, uh, that he would, and that the blind would see. This was good news, and Jesus was announcing it. And um, so he says, since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached. And that's exactly what Jesus has been doing. He's been going from town to town, announcing the kingdom of God is here. Because the king is here. And he's sending a message that is good news. And it's hope for people. And he offered proof. Because there were the blind that were given sight, and sick people were healed, and demon-possessed people were freed from their bondage. The crowds were attracted to Jesus. And then there's a very hard phrase here. Everyone was forcing their way into it. Everyone was forcing their way into the kingdom. What does that mean? And there's a lot of viewpoints about that. And I won't say that I absolutely know what... I'll just say, in my opinion... I think this means that the people are so attracted to Jesus and his message that they're pressing in on him. That's what happened. So many people came and they pressed in on him. They just they wanted to hear. And many responded to Jesus' good news and to him as Messiah. So the idea is, and this can be translated uh, it's a, broadly. Pressing in is a very valid translation. Verse 17, we see the authority of God's word. And he has to re, sort of like remind these religious leaders about their Bible. He says in verse 17, it's easier for heaven and earth to disappear. You know, that, that, that's not an easy thing. For heaven and earth to disappear, for creation to disappear, than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. You know, and the idea of the least stroke of a pen is something like, in our language, in the English language, it would be like a dot over an I, or the crossing of a T. God's word is reliable God's promises will be fulfilled. That's what Jesus is saying. The kingdom of God is advancing. It's been advancing since John. It's been advancing through Jesus. And it's going to continue to advance. The kingdom is coming. There's going to be a lot of change coming. A lot of prophecies are going to be fulfilled with Jesus' death. And a new access to God through Jesus Christ and Him alone. And some prophecies, for example, Jerusalem is going to be destroyed in 70 AD. That was forewarned. A lot of things are coming. And we have a huge amount of promises left that are still coming. The kingdom of God is still coming. It's advancing right now. And one day Jesus will come back to this earth. It'll be a glorious return. And he will come and he will bring a final judgment. And he will come and he will establish an eternal 
kingdom forever. And you know where it's going to be? It's going to be here on this earth that's remade. The kingdom of God is advancing. Count on it. Uh, Matthew 5.18 For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Everything that God intends will be accomplished. All those things in prophecy not yet fulfilled. And let us be reminded from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, how this fits in with our lives. All Scripture is God-breathed, inspired by God, and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, and we need this. God's Word is spiritual food for our soul. It nourishes our soul. It builds our soul. It equips us. It offers correction. kind of shows us when we slip out of line. By the way, how are you using the Word of God in your life? How important is it? Is it like a once a week thing? If you come to church, is it important throughout the week? Are you investing and learning? Are you growing in your understanding of Scripture and how to apply it to your, to your own life? That's what God wants us. He, he wants us just to continue to learn about Him. And we've got a lifetime to do it. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 24 and 25. How about priorities? For all people are like grass, and their glory is like the flowers of the field. Hey, this life is great. And we have our peak. Maybe it's our a peak in beauty or a peak in you know, being handsome and strong or a peak in being successful. But you know what? It's going to fade. And we get older and we get wrinkles. I read about it in a book. <laughs> Things change and we end up in a box. And that's what I want. Is I want to be in a box and I want to be in the ground because I want to wait for the resurrection. But the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. What do you want to invest in? Something that's going to be out of date, turned to dust, or something that's going to last forever. I just want to remind us to raise the value that Scripture is important to us, okay? It's important to you. But you have to be intentional if it's going to be in your life. It can't be like spoon-fed to you once a week. That's okay, but... It's you need to more than that to continue to grow. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 19 through 21. Peter writes, We've, we also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable. That, that's what I want to remind us. The Word of God is completely reliable. You can count on it. There's a lot of opinions about the Bible. There's a lot of people who don't think it's important. A lot of people who think it's like partially important. But you can count on it. It's reliable. You know, one day we're all going to stand before Jesus and, hey, we're going to know all the answers to our questions about the Bible. And you're going to know, was it true? And you're going to find out it was right on. I don't understand it all. There's a ton of passages that I don't understand. 
But I tell you what, I trust him. If I could just understand, I am very confident it would turn out that way. And you will do well to pay attention to it. That's for us. We need to pay attention to the word of God as a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. Next slide. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. It's not a man's viewpoint. Written by men, there's a human element to writing it down. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but the prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. God is the author of our book. And it's up to you and me to bring it into our lives. Do you trust it? Because if you do, you're going to want to have it in your life. Go to the last verse, verse 18. This is a really hard passage, and uh, I've entitled this section, The Sanctity of Marriage, verse 18. And I, uh, let me just read that again, because I hope this just raises all kinds of questions. Because if you come to a hard passage like that, it's exactly what happens. It's so easy to be misunderstood. And if I just read it quickly and give you a short explanation, I wouldn't be doing this justice because there are so many questions that go with it. Anyone, verse 18, who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery. And the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Why did Jesus say that? Why did he say it to the Pharisees at this time? It's because divorce was a major problem in the first century in the land of Israel. I kind of think it might be a problem in our world, too. Divorce was a serious problem at the time of Jesus. It was a man's world. And self-righteous and self-justifying Pharisees were very lax on marriage. You would think they would be super strict. They were very lax. There was a passage in Deuteronomy chapter 24 where Moses permitted marry, or permitted divorce. And the, a lot of the religious leaders in the first century took that uh, quite liberally. They were very permissive about divorce. For example, Rabbi Hillel wrote, that a woman could be divorced if she spoiled her husband's supper. I am not kidding. He was a religious leader, well known in his day. And he was cited as an authority. You know, and hey, you could justify, couldn't you? I'm not the problem. She is. Uh, Rabbi Akiba said... If a man found uh, someone prettier than his wife, he could divorce her. It's true. Jesus has very good reasons to speak these words to the religious leaders, those responsible for teaching God's people. He has a very good reason for challenging them and confronting them right on the spot. 
But before we can talk about verse 18, I want to go back and just remind us of some of the really important things about marriage. Uh, I want to go back to the original design, and let's start with Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27. We go back and start with God, who is the creator. God is the one who created us. He is the designer. He had a plan. And do we pay attention to his plan and his design and his instructions, or do we make up our own as we go? So God created mankind in his own image, in the image of God. He created them, male and female. He created them. God is the creator. He created us in his image. There's something about male and female that reflect and represent God's nature. There's something about us that's really important, and it separates us from the rest of creation. And he has a plan and a design for us to reflect his glory. Then we come to, uh, and he has, here's the deal. So um, in Genesis chapter 1, in the creation account, God creates, and then he pauses and said, this is good. And he says that six times in Genesis 1, that his creation is good, all of it. And then when he creates male and female, he says, this is very good. And he places the man and the woman at the highest point of creation and gives them the highest responsibility over the earth. Now, it's going to fail in Genesis chapter 3. They're going to fail in their relationship. It's going to change things. And um, their relationship is going to deteriorate. And there's going to be a whole lot of things in creation that are going to deteriorate as sin begins to take its place in our world. There's one other verse I'm just going to jump to, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, 14. I just want to remind us as a church. And the Apostle Paul gives this principle, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. Why? For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? And this is a problem of coming to marriage with a, belie- a spiritually mixed marriage. A believer coming into a marriage and marrying an unbeliever. Because there are two different tracks, and they might get along for a while, but these are life tracks, and it's really hard to pull it off and to be close and intimate and on the same page with the same purpose in a spiritually mixed marriage, okay? And so the Apostle Paul uh, instructs and warns us of that principle. Verse 18, we come to... uh, this passage that I read, and we're going to read it in just a little bit, but let me set the stage because Jesus taught quite a bit about this in Matthew chapter 19. So some Pharisees came to test him. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? And in the first century, there was like a really liberal view of divorce, and then there was a really conservative view of divorce. And so whatever the, the idea of the test is, whatever Jesus is saying, he's going to be wrong. That's kind of what their mindset is. But in general, there's a very broad view that divorce can be for almost anything if it's convenient. So is it lawful to divorce a woman for anything? And then Jesus takes him right back to Scripture. Haven't you read, you should know better, folks, that the, at the beginning... The creator made them male and female. So he's going to take them to Genesis 1, 
Now he's going to take him to Genesis 2. Next slide. And said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. Um, I skipped Genesis 2.24, didn't I? But here it is. It's right here. This is a foundation, Genesis 2.24. Foundation for marriage given in the Old Testament. And it's a foundation for marriage for us. Man will leave his father and mother. He's got a, parents were the highest priority humanly. And when one got married, didn't really set the parents aside, but they, the parents became a lower priority. And this new relationship becomes the highest priority, the, the, the marriage partner. And going to leave, you're going to cleave, be united to his wife. That's like, that's like a, for us a public um, ceremony where God is a witness and there's a marriage covenant established right there and the two will become one flesh. And two come together and one. Definitely included sex. But it's 24-7, so you, it's not just sex. It's about this exclusive relationship where you now do not go outside. You do not have relationships outside of this exclusive relationship in the male-female intimate relationship. Sex outside is a no. God planned, this is God's plan. He wanted to protect marriage. Uh, he designed it to be exclusive where trust could happen. That's, you know, the greatest problem with unfaithfulness is that trust is destroyed. Uh, he continues, verse 6, uh, go back, let's go back. Verse 6, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. There it is. Therefore, what God has joined together, because that's what happens in marriage. There's a covenant relationship established, and God is a witness. Whether you ask God to be a witness or not, he is a witness. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Let no one tear it apart. An outsider shouldn't tear it apart. Husband shouldn't tear it apart. Wife shouldn't tear it apart. Next slide now. Verse 7, what then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, not because it was God's plan or God's intention, because God knows how painful divorce is because humans bond together in an exclusive relationship, and if you tear that apart, you're going to tear half your life apart. It's painful. There is like no, no fault divorce when it comes to pain and hurt and disappointment. It's not this way from the beginning. Next slide. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except, here's the exception for sexual immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. So Jesus is going to, this is what Jesus was teaching in Luke 16, but Jesus left out the phrase except for adultery in Luke 16, and I want to make sure we see that. And what Jesus is teaching is there is something that is so harsh and so painful that God can understand an innocent party, assuming there is an innocent party, one who was faithful, can understand that this relationship has been broken and it may not be reconcilable. It's not a command. It's, it's a permission to divorce 
in the case of sexual immorality. And if, the, and if there's permission, then there's also permission to remarry. That the, the, there's a freedom to remarry in God's eyes. Okay? I told you this was a hard passage, and it's a complicated idea. And the only way I know how to talk about it is to see the whole big picture. So if someone is married and they get divorced and they don't have a legitimate ground, they are still bound to their first mate. There's still a covenant. Maybe it's been violated by sin, but if there is, if there is not a legitimate reason and the only one is sexual immorality, according to Jesus, then... Um, there is not freedom to remarry. So if you do remarry and you, you're committing adultery now with your new wife, that's a hard one, isn't it? Let's go back to verse 18, Luke 16. Anyone who divorces his wife, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery, and the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This is not a very popular idea in our world. And what I want to say is that God has a very high view of marriage, and we need a very high view of marriage. We tend to bring marriage down to what everybody else is doing, because marriage can be hard. It's probably the hardest relationship there is. Sexual immorality is okay with our culture. You know it. It's not okay with God. So I'm not going to pick on anyone here because I'm, I haven't even thought about the implications. My question, here's my question. Have you been divorced without a biblical ground for divorce? Have you been divorced without a biblical ground and remarried? Did you understand you were committing adultery. Nobody has to answer. Now, you know what? Any and every sin can be forgiven. There is nothing God can't forgive. So, practical question is, if you fit in one of those two, have you ever acknowledged before God that what you did was wrong? I want to advise that you do talk to him about it you know it's not about justifying ourselves it's about being honest with our own failures do we see things from God's perspective or do we do it the way we think is best or our friends think it's best and by the way I have compassion for divorced people divorced people are not second class citizens in any way I have, I have three kids, and now two of them are divorced as of last month. That's really hard. And it's painful for everybody involved. Um, so 
Do you think Jesus is wrong when he said this? I'm coming back to the authority of Scripture. And if we want to be right with God, let's just be honest with him. So you don't have to do anything publicly for me. I just want you, if that applied to you, would you just honestly admit that to God and seek his forgiveness and then accept his forgiveness, okay? Um, and let me just say, you, you can't divorce-proof your marriage. I think there's a book about divorce-proofing your marriage, and I'm all for, the, for that concept. But you know what? We have to be intentional about our marriages. We have to invest in our relationships with our spouses. Um, I, when, when we got married, I was the Pharisee. I was uh, self-righteous, and I justified, and I was right, and she was wrong. And I always had a good reason. After I became a follower of Christ, I began to admit maybe I was wrong on that one. And it's still, it was a slow process for me to admit my own shortcomings, my weaknesses, and my mistakes, and my sins. For the longest time, if I hurt Sue's feeling, if I offended her with my attitude and my speech, if I didn't intend to hurt her, it was her problem, not my problem. And after a while, I learned, no, I just hurt her, and I don't want to hurt her, and what I did was wrong, even though I didn't see it. And God has made me a whole lot more sensitive in these areas today. Uh, but you have to build it. We need to build into our relationship. We need to be intentional. We need to be attentive to our mates. We need to take time to talk and find out what's going on in our, each other's lives. One of the best things that you will learn to do as a couple is to pray together. And for Sue and me, it, it brings us into alignment. We're on the same page. We have the same concerns. I understand what, what is important to her. She understands what's important to me. We are, we are reminded to, to move forward in, in advancing the kingdom of God together. But we have to be reminded because we both can be sloppy. We're not perfect. Um, we, you know, if you've been around us, you know that we value dating. And I know at our former church, people thought we were crazy on how busy we were. And, and I would always say, you know what? We date two nights a week. And, you know, we just say no. And we do something with each other. And it's just for us. And through the years, we've continued to keep dating very important. You know, we, we made wedding vows if you're married, you made wedding vows. How do you keep those? You, you have to invest every day to do that. It's a choice. It's a decision to raise the value because everything around you is going to drag your marriage down. It's going to take all of your energy. And people, you know, somebody's not going to say you're pretty unless it's your husband. Somebody's not going to say, I'm so proud of you unless the wife says that about her husband. We need to build each other up. Um, one of the things that we've did through the years is we've tried to get away for weekends. You know, get out of town. When we had kids at home, it was to get away from the kids, and I learned that it was very, very important that, our, that Sue knew our kids were in good hands, so she never had to worry about them. But, you know, we had some time away. It's important for our relationship. 
So when I ever hear that you want to get away just to be with your spouse on a weekend, you want to get out of town, okay, go miss church. May your tribe increase. <laughs> um, one of the things that we did through the years was we, we found that, you know, that 80-20 where you focus on your mate's weaknesses and you forget to tell them about their strengths. We would set a time, sometimes a couple of times a year, and uh, we would go out to dinner and we would come with a plan. I'm going to talk about five of your strengths and then I'm going to mention two things I think you could grow in. You know, Sue would come with her five. We maybe did ten once in a while. We often got down to five. But we gave the other person permission to remind us of what we needed to continue to work on. But it's really good to hear the things that your mate's happy with, that encourages you, rather than just those things that are your, your imperfections and your weakness. So for all of us, um, you know, this is, think of this as a heart check. What about your relationships? Are you one who uh, self-justifies and you think about the mistakes of the other person and you don't own your own mistakes? Um, think about God's Word. Do you trust God's Word enough to invest time in it this next week? Do we seek just to justify ourselves in the front of others so that we look like we have it all together? Okay, next week, I'm going to talk about the gospel, I'm going to present the gospel, bring somebody as a guest. Let's stand together. I want to pray. Father, we just uh, come before you this morning, and sometimes passages are hard. Thank you that you have high standards, that you've not left us without the ability, without the resources. You've given us the Holy Spirit of God to empower us and strengthen us and guide us to be our help in time of need. Lord, may we depend on your word. May we grow in our appreciation of your word. May we seek to apply the word in our lives, to internalize it, to make it a part of our thought life. And Father, I want to pray that you'll guard our relationships and guard our words and help us to be honest before you because you know our hearts. Help us to be people who encourage others instead of people who primarily criticize others. I pray for our marriages, Lord, and just ask God that you will help us to grow our relationships strong, that we'll be able to last a lifetime. Help us to honor our wedding vows. Help us to love our mates in the power of the Holy Spirit. Strengthen us so that we can love our kids and lead our kids and to be examples to our kids. Thank you for your word. 
In Jesus' name, amen.